The subject of the talk tonight is uh, practicing mudita, joy and gratitude. And I was just struck uh, many times throughout the day today how lucky we are. I mean, this just seemed to me like almost a perfect day for practice. You know, it started off and you knew you were going to have a great lunch. So you kind of, you kind of wake up happy. And then there was that amazing quiet snow, the first real snow of the winter coming on Thanksgiving Day. That's beautiful timing. And then the lunch lived up totally to its expectations, including the beautiful way the staff decorated the tables. Didn't that just pick your spirits up when you walked in? So much love and care for, for you, you know? It wasn't for anybody else. And then in the afternoon, um, the way that the sun came out of those heavy clouds and uh, the light in the western sky as it was setting, it was just a gorgeous day to be here. And it's a gorgeous day to be warm and dry and inside at this time of night also. We're lucky that way too. A Zen master was once asked, what's the purpose of a lifetime of practice? This is an interesting question to reflect on. It's something each of us might want to take some time to think about. What's the purpose of a lifetime of practice? I wonder how each of us would answer that. And the Zen master's answer was really simple. He said, an appropriate response. Is that a little anticlimactic? (laughs) Doesn't it seem like the Zen master should say, the purpose of a lifetime of practice is so I can be run through with a sword and not blink an eye or you know, something really death-defying. The purpose of a lifetime of practice is an appropriate response. I love the humility of that. We're not aiming for anything otherworldly. We're aiming to be fully human and let our humanness come out in each moment that it is asked for. When life presents us with a situation that challenges our understanding and our equanimity, what does our practice lead us to in our response? That's how we check our practice. How do we respond to these situations of life? In our tradition, I think the Brahma-viharas are one uh, really beautiful uh, road map of the appropriate response of our hearts. They show us the possibility of a way that a wise heart, or you could say an awakened heart, meets life. And of course, life is characterized by changing conditions. The conditions of life are always revolving between pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, constantly cycling among these that the Buddha called the eight worldly conditions. The Brahma-viharas show us how we can meet these changes in a balanced and wise way. First, we set the foundation with loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is that development of heart that can look at another being and look into their heart and say, I know there is in there a world of feeling a world of joys and sorrows, and I care about that. I care about how your heart is receiving the joys and sorrows of your life. Turning to ourselves, we care about how our own heart is receiving the joys and sorrows of our life. 
So the practice of loving kindness tenderizes us to the human condition, to everybody's situation of uh, enjoyment of this existence and our vulnerability to the suffering in it. Then with that as our foundation, when this open heart turns toward suffering, what naturally gets evoked is compassion. Compassion is the natural response of the open heart when it sees suffering. And then exactly complementary to the compassion is appreciative joy or mudita. When this open heart looks upon someone who's experiencing happiness, the natural response is our own happiness. We are happy that someone else is experiencing happiness in this life. So these are the two poles. How do we relate to the changing conditions of life? If we're awake, compassion when we touch suffering, appreciative joy when we touch happiness, outside in others or inside in ourselves. This is so different from the usual responses. As you know, the near enemy of compassion is grief, feeling burdened, uh, overwhelmed, miserable because of the amount of suffering that we encounter. The uh, most common enemy of appreciative joy is envy, feeling that we can't enjoy somebody else's happiness because their happiness threatens ours in some way. But the heart can move to these wise responses of compassion and joy when the mind is supported by the fourth Brahma-vihara, which is equanimity. Equanimity is the balance of mind that lets us hold all the suffering in life and all the joys of life in a balance where we're not disturbed, where we're not thrown off our own inner sense of well-being. So these four Brahma-viharas are all necessary. They all work together. But together they provide this uh, roadmap to the heart's response to life, our own and others' experience of life. So this evening I want to talk particularly about the third of the Brahma-viharas, the practice of mudita or appreciative joy. As we talked about last night in the guided meditation, this can be a really happy practice. It's very upbeat because, first of all, we're looking for happiness outside ourselves and within ourselves. So our radar is up for the happy experiences of life. And then we cultivate this ability to feel our own happiness when we touch them. So it's really this double expression of happiness. I had a phone call a while ago from a friend who I hadn't talked to for a while. I just picked up the phone and said hello, and she said who it was. And I said, how are you doing? And her immediate response was, I'm wonderful. And just hearing that from her with her spirit, it just picked my spirits up, and immediately I just said back without thinking, I am too. <laughs> and that was the, just the spontaneous expression of mudita, her happiness and then our shared happiness, that double happiness of the situation. The Dalai Lama says that if you can be happy with other people's happiness, then your odds of happiness go up by six billion to one. (laughs) That puts the odds in our favor. Those are good odds. This is a very, very helpful quality of mind to cultivate as part of our 
path of practice, as one aspect of our path of practice. Joy is an integral and I would say a necessary part of the path to liberation. And later in the talk I want to talk about how it fits into the conventional view, the classical view of insight practice. But this quality, as we foster it, as we recognize it, as we uh, develop it, keeps the mind inclining to what's wholesome. When your mind is in a place of joy or happiness, you're not going to have much interest in gravitating to unwholesome states. So this keeps the mind on that side of right effort which supports the wholesome, the positive. James Barras, who's a teaching colleague of Sally's and mine at Spirit Rock, uh, has been offering a series of classes over the last couple of years uh, on the development of joy. And these are some of the best attended classes that I've seen in the Bay Area. People take them, then they tell their friends about them, and then all their friends start going. And people have really uh, gotten a lot out of it and enjoyed it, too. And one of the things that we say when we uh, teach about joy is we're not trying to force anything to happen in our hearts or in our minds. It's not possible. At least doing it skillfully, it's not possible. As you know from doing the metta practice or compassion, we intend the mind in that direction, we incline it, and then we take what we get. The Buddha said that what one frequently thinks and ponders upon that becomes the inclination of the mind. As we practice loving kindness, compassion, and joy, these qualities more and more become the inclination of our mind. That means that we find ourselves there more and more often, quite spontaneously. The mind just starts liking to go in that direction, tending in that direction. So all we really have to do in doing the um, Vipassana practice, is notice the presence of this joy when it arises. Of course, in doing the practice of the Brahmavihara, of appreciative joy, we're doing a little more. We're saying phrases, we're looking for happiness, we're recognizing it when it comes. But in Vipassana practice, all we need to do is recognize the joy when it's there. But this can be a new step for a lot of us as meditators. The uh, Four Noble Truths are not heavily slanted toward uh, this recognition. And yet I'd like to suggest that they could be reframed a little bit and that this is implicit in them. I think if the Buddha had grown up in California, (laughs) that, you know, in in California we're relentlessly upbeat, right? You know, it's the sunshine and the surf and the orange groves and all that stuff. So the first noble truth would probably have been, there are many opportunities for growth in life. (laughs) And the third noble truth would definitely have been restated. Instead of the end of suffering, it would be the attainment of happiness. But this is not actually that heretical. You know, the Dalai Lama had a best-selling book that was on the charts for quite a while, I think on the New York Times bestseller list, called The Art of Happiness. And it was his expression of the third noble truth. 
Because when you think about it, if you let the significance of the third noble truth sink in, what would it feel like if suffering really went out of your life altogether? What would it feel like if any one of us came really to the end of suffering, of the torments of mind of greed and fear and hatred and confusion? That is the highest kind of happiness possible. So the whole path can be seen as the development in a wise way of our potential for happiness. That's really the point of it. So in the setting here, we can start to tune into the very simple moments of happiness that come during a day. Things that we just may not have been looking for uh, previously. But start to tune into them and see how the recognition of them affects your quality of mind and heart. So for instance, waking up, getting out of bed, and having a hot shower. There's something really delightful about that when you're still a little bit sleepy and that hot water hits. Or you come in from a cold uh, afternoon walk after lunch and you can have a hot cup of tea out of the tea urn and you warm your hands and it warms your belly as the, as the tea goes down. A day like today after the dark clouds and the snow and then seeing the sun come through, those rays of light in the late afternoon. And then the meditator's perhaps greatest pleasure, lying down on one's bed at the end of a day. Delicious moment. It just lasts so briefly when I'm sitting because the next thing I know, the wake-up bell's ringing. These are all present, and when we're on retreat, because of the simplicity of our life, they're actually really heightened. The Buddha said that robes, alms food, a hut, and a straw seat will seem rich and luxurious to one who is renounced. Don't you feel that way sometimes here? That it's so rich and luxurious to have all this time and this food provided for you and good company on the path. It's really, it's wonderful. There's the joy of nature, which supports us so well here. Reminds me of one particular period of practice uh, when I was in Thailand, uh, just after I ordained as a, as a bhikkhu, my preceptor let me go off to a forest monastery in the north outside of Chiang Mai. It was a very small monastery that had about uh, 10 huts for nuns and 10 huts for monks that were separated by a river. So there wouldn't be any, you know, hanky-panky. <laughs> and the Thai people were very generous and uh, gave me the most remote monk's hut. It was the furthest upstream. So in my hut, I couldn't see another person. It was a really great experience of solitude, and it was right by this uh, running stream that was set down in the the base of this deep gorge. So it was really uh, quite a mountainous, a wild kind of mountainous feeling, like some of the old Chinese hermit monks that you see the paintings of. I was there for three months. I did a three-month retreat just before the rains. And uh, the teacher didn't speak English. He was a lovely man, and he was well-practiced in our style of practice that he had learned uh, from a student of Mahasi Sayadaw. 
but he didn't speak English and there really wasn't a translator. So for those three months, I, I didn't have an interview and I didn't hear a Dharma talk. Uh, there wasn't another Westerner there that I could talk to. So it was quite, quite solitary. A teacher and I would communicate somewhat. Uh, he would uh, occasionally bring visitors up to my hut and usually I'd be meditating because there wasn't really anything else to do. So they'd look in through the window and he'd see me meditating and he'd say, D, D, which means good, good. So that was one of my interactions with the teacher. (laughs) And the other one was when he'd come up and I'd be doing my walking meditation and for some reason, I don't know why, I was wearing my uh, rubber sandals while I was walking. And he'd point to my shoes, he'd go like that, like, no, no, telling me to take my shoes off. So that was the extent of my instruction for for three months. So it was, uh, it was quite isolated. Um, I felt very lonely at times. And yet I think what really pulled me through was the beauty of the nature there. I just felt so uh, nourished and enriched and delighted uh, in the presence of that nature. And one, one other facet of it that uh, struck me, there was a big old mango tree that I had to walk by, walk under, to get to my hut. And it happened to be mango season. So the mango was just dropping its fruit all over the path I was walking by. And so these explosions of orange and that brilliant mango aroma were coming up as I'd walk by. But the little catch is, as a monk, I couldn't eat the fruit. As a monk... It was, it was sad. <laughs> but as, as a monk, you're not allowed to eat anything that hasn't been placed directly in your own hands before noon of that day. So I'd come back from breakfast. This was a one meal a day kind of place. We'd eat breakfast about eight in the morning. And I'd walk back by those, all those falling mangoes and I couldn't touch them. That was a little bittersweet. But it was a beautiful smell nonetheless. So the joy of nature is a great support and very available here. Very available. Even if you're uh, just outside briefly in a day, just notice the impression on your senses and notice that touch of happiness and joy from the contact with the beauty. There's also in meditating uh, deep levels of joy that we touch one of the great discoveries early on in my practice was the possibility of peace. I'd never really known that this was achievable in my normal daily life. And to come into meditation and find that the mind could quiet, that my whole being could be rest, restful and stilled, was a great delight. And in some ways I think it was that uh, lure that kept me coming back to retreats again and again. Because every time I came, it seemed like I'd touch a deeper level of peace uh, that I'd not known was possible. And that was a a revelation for me. There's also a great joy in being with the truth of things. Even when the truth is not so easy. Because there's something in us that knows that we need to make our relationship with what's difficult in us that what's difficult in us, if we leave it unresolved, 
governs our life in unconscious ways and leads us into confusion and fear and unskillful conduct that's harmful to ourselves and others and the torments of mind that accompany it. Touching those places of difficulty we know is the way to freedom. And so there's often a great delight. One yogi said in an interview a while ago, one of the most joyful things about being here is being able to be with the pain and open to it. This is an acquired taste. But take a look and see if there isn't a truth to it, that when you touch that pain and make your peace with it, that there is a real delight in that. As we practice mudita for others, of course, we come into contact with the joys in their life. And I'll just share one, uh, because it's a recent one, from a friend of ours in the Bay Area. Uh, Their son went on a, uh, they're meditators, and have been for a long time. And their son, who's uh, in his late teens, went on a meditation retreat for the first time in his life recently. And this was kind of a dream come true for, for them because, as you know, you know, with parents, you can't force anything on your kids, especially once they get to be teenagers. Um, but he had uh, overcome his kind of uh, distrust of the older generation's habits enough to be interested in the meditation retreat. And at the end of it, he wrote this really beautiful summary of what he'd learned, where he felt he'd come to a new understanding of life and the importance of non-harming, conducting oneself in such a way as not to harm in any way other beings, and then enjoying what he called the bliss of blamelessness from that. And that was a key for him in his a new view of life as he went off to university. And then we've heard since he entered his freshman year of university this fall, he started a little meditation class for other students. So that was just a beautiful sense of happiness for for his parents. As we open to mudita for all beings, touching on this, um, this situation, which I think is true within my experience, that all beings have some experiences of joy and happiness in their life. However difficult their lives are, there are moments that shine through, as far as I know, for everyone. There was a woman on retreat uh, last summer who had come uh, to California from Manchester, England. And if any of you know Manchester, England, it is not one of the most radiant places on the globe. It's one of those northern British cities where uh, night falls very early in the winter, And it's an old industrial area, so it's not uh, extremely beautiful in in its architecture. And her job there was a difficult one. She was helping women refugees get established in their new lives in England. So these are women who had fled their home country, uh, mostly in the developing world, because of uh, persecution of some form, religious or political and for whom it was not safe to live in their, in their home country. Now, can you imagine having to flee your homeland because of persecution 
where probably your life was in danger, maybe your family's life was in danger, and landing in some strange, cold northern city where you may not know people. That would be a really difficult adjustment. So I just asked her, because this was a metta retreat, can you see um, moments of joy, openness to joy, in the lives of the women that you counsel? And she said, absolutely. She said, one of the most inspiring things about the job is the resiliency of their spirits. That in the midst of that really difficult life situation, they still have a lot of enthusiasm and obviously experiences of joy and happiness. When we focus on the practice of mudita, we look for things that will make others happy. And they don't have to be the things that make us happy. Uh, A few years ago, uh, Sally, who likes to ride horses, when we moved on to the Spirit Rock land, kind of inherited the care of this old quarter horse who had uh, been on the land for many years rounding up cattle because it was uh, formerly used for cattle grazing. So this old horse, whose name was Bob, had a deep sway back and had been running up and down those hills for probably 20 years, herding up cattle and bringing them down to the, to the pastures. So at this point, there were no more cattle on the Spirit Rock land, but we were left with Bob. That was part of the deal. And Sally, having a knowledge of horses, was the one who took on his care. So in the winter and in the summer, she would be down there at uh, 8.30 in the morning, making sure Bob had food and water uh, in his corral. Winter mornings, the ice would be thick in the trough. She'd actually have to break through the ice to make sure he could get to the water. Sometimes in the winter, his uh, hoofs would get abscesses, and she'd have to fill a bucket of hot water with Epsom salts and take down and pick his leg up and stick it in the bucket so he'd soak that foot and the abscess would get better and tromp around in the mud because it rains a lot in Woodacre in the winter. And yet, I never heard her complain about doing that and that there, there was something in her care for that old horse who was kind of cantankerous to boot that I could tell was, uh, was a pleasure for her, at least mostly. So it doesn't have to be what makes us happy. There was another period in the winter, it was about that same time, when um, some local skunks found their way underneath our house. And the place that they ended up liking the best was underneath our bedroom. So some mornings at about 2 o'clock, we'd be awakened by this pungent, oily aroma that was wafting up from below. And then it was hard to get back to sleep (laughs) because it was quite strong and we could smell it in the closets in the next morning. And it's not so easy to get skunks out from underneath your house, as you may know. So it took a while to figure out what to do. And in the meantime, they discovered that the other thing they liked to do was to bounce on the top of our furnace, which was a metal gas-burning furnace. And they used it kind of like a trampoline. And they like to do that also about two or three in the morning. So we hear boing, boing, the skunks are at it again. So it was a source of some frustration 
as you can imagine, and my thoughts were not always kindly directed. But at the same time, I did appreciate that they were probably really enjoying being dry and warm (laughs) in the basement of our house. So I had some mudita for them, but it didn't stop me from trapping them with a -a have-a-heart trap and releasing them in a state park a few miles down the road. I was happy to relocate them to their natural setting. So with mudita, the near enemy is uh, exhilaration or exuberance, or you could say attachment. And this is something uh, might arise because there's some personal benefit. Like you have a friend who inherited a cabin in the mountains where you want to go skiing, and you think, oh good, I can go skiing at their cabin. I'm happy about that. But that's not appreciating just your friend's happiness. And it's also a kind of Uh, This exuberance is a kind of a feeling that arises when one attaches to happiness and starts thinking, as I think Sally mentioned this morning, of projecting it into the future. Oh, now that I'm happy, I can do X, Y, and Z. My life will be so great now that I'm happy. That's a clinging and a kind of corruption of the happiness by thought. The far enemy is envy, and this is an interesting state to explore because it's really irrational. It's our inability to enjoy someone else's happiness. And it feels as though their happiness takes away some of ours, as though there's only a finite quantity of happiness in the world. And if they have that much of it, I can't have enough for myself. So take a look when you hear of good news from a friend and see if the response has a little bit of a tinge of this quality of envy. About a year after I graduated from college, I went off to the Peace Corps. I taught for two years in Malaysia. I was really interested to experience another culture and to just have some contact with Asia because I was interested in Buddhism already at that time. And I'd broken up with my girlfriend at the time a few months before I went away. And then after I'd been in Malaysia for a few months, I got a letter from my best friend telling me that he was now in relationship with my ex-girlfriend. Mudita was not the first emotion that came to my mind. So taking a look and seeing what uh, what is underneath envy. What is the reaction that forms the ground for envy? And I wonder if it isn't also kind of um, caught up with the comparing mind. As though if someone else is doing really well, that means they're a better person than we are if we don't feel we're doing as well. That their success or their good fortune uh, reflects on us in a negative way. Which, of course, doesn't make sense, but we might feel that. And it's kind of similar to uh, a near enemy of compassion that uh, is sometimes called pity. And when somebody's having a hard time, we sometimes uh, imagine that that makes us better than them. And so we may feel sorry for them, but with a condescension or looking down. And that's not true compassion, but more the quality of pity. In true compassion, there's a sense of equality between us. As we tune into mudita, as it uh, expresses through our own situation, the appreciation of our own blessings, 
Part of the flavor that comes through, I think, is one of gratitude. When we appreciate the blessings that we have. Gratitude is a really beautiful state of mind because when we appreciate what we have, it cuts through greed. We don't necessarily want more. But it also cuts through aversion because we're not dissatisfied with what we have. So gratitude frees us from both greed and aversion. I'll tell a little story about Kamala, um, which she's given me permission to tell. She has a a few granddaughters now and uh, was talking to one of them on the phone a few years ago. And I think her granddaughter at that time uh, was five years old. And Kamala asked the granddaughter, well, when you get lots of presents on Christmas, do you feel thankful for what you have or does it make you want more? And the little girl said, oh, Nana, I'd like some more. (laughs) And Kamala just quietly said, oh, that's too bad. And it kind of stopped her granddaughter and she said, why, why, what do you mean by that? And Kamala said, well, haven't you noticed that when you're thankful for what you have, you feel good? And when you're wanting more, it doesn't feel so good. And the little girl said, oh, Nana, you're right. This is the magic of gratitude. And all of us here have so many things to be thankful for. Being warm and sheltered and clothed and so well fed as we are. And having access to medicine for the most part, we fulfilled what the Buddha called the four requisites of the human life. Food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. We have those uh, in reasonably good supply, most of us. Many people don't. You look at any one of those factors, many people do not have adequate food, or clothing, or shelter, or medicine in this world. The Tibetans, moreover, call the situation that we all share the precious human birth with great endowments. You may have heard this um, statement in the, the Buddhist view of life being born over and over, of individuals taking birth over and over, that it's very rare to be born as a human being. The human being uh, situation is very conducive for practice and for liberation because it has a good mix of pleasure and pain. If there's too much pleasure, it's easy to get lazy and not to want to work. If there's too much pain, we feel overwhelmed and discouraged, and we can't work for our freedom. The human realm has a mixture that's conducive uh, from both sides. We have the opportunity to take real advantage of it through our situation here in our connection with the Dharma. First of all, we've all been born with pretty well-working minds and bodies. Our senses are functioning, our minds are in good shape. We've taken birth at a time when a Buddha has appeared in the world. We've been born in a place and time when the Dharma is flourishing and available. We've been born at a time and place where practitioners are actively engaging in the teachings. 
we've also heard and understood the teachings. And we have the interest and some degree of leisure time to pursue them. And when you put all those things together, that's a very rare combination of circumstances. The Tibetans say that it's because of uh, great merit, wholesome uh, karma that we've accumulated in the past that all these conditions have come together for us in this way. And they encourage us to take advantage of our time and to take advantage of these conditions to uh, make our best effort for freedom, for liberation. A lot of you have mentioned this sense of gratitude over the last days. I think it's a very uh, beautiful feeling that comes often at this time in the retreat. An expression of gratitude mainly for the Dharma that you've been able to Uh, have your life touched by the Dharma or transformed by the Dharma, that it has illuminated so many things that were unclear for you. And it is a great blessing. So being in a practice situation, there's often a lot of gratitude already. But those of you who've practiced in Asia probably know that the the sense of gratitude can be uh, very, very strong at centers there. I went last year uh, to practice in Burma for six weeks. And I had the the opportunity, and and so I took advantage of it, to ordain as a monk uh, with Paok Sayadaw, the great meditation master in the southeast of Burma, one of the most reliable authorities on the jhanas that I think is uh, alive and teaching in the world today. And because uh, they knew I was going to Burma, uh, one of my students gave me some money to take to offer his dana to the monastery. Because as you know, Burma is a very poor country. The monasteries are always in need of support. So I told her that I would um, try to sponsor at least one lunch, if not a few lunches, uh, with, with her donation. So as soon as I got to the monastery, while I was still a layperson, I went to the office and said to the steward of the monastery, the the layperson who handles the money for the monastery, uh, I have some money from a supporter in America, and uh, she would like to offer some some lunches during this retreat. Well, I'd gotten there at the start of the Rains Retreat, which is a three-month period of practice. There were 750 people practicing in the monastery for most of the Rains Retreat. There were about 400 monks, about 150 nuns, and a lot of laymen and laywomen. So I said, uh, I'd like to purchase at least one lunch. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, all the lunches have been provided for the next three months. And they're all on Donna. The monastery doesn't have this great store of money that they can provide lunches out of. So people had already come forward, most of them Burmese, and made the donations to provide the meals, the lunches for the next three months to feed 750 people. So what I was able to do with with her donation was to offer a few breakfasts. So we had three special breakfasts during the rains retreat, which were actually they were quite delicious. It was uh, fried bread and a curry soup. It was really great. Um, so every day we would go down to lunch and there was a whiteboard similar to the one here on which would be written the menu for the day 
and who uh, had donated the lunch for that day. And that was the form, which is used in other monasteries in Burma as well, that inspired our practice here of the meal dana and the whiteboard with the acknowledgments. So every day as I went down, I would read, you know, they'd have the name in Burmese and in English, the family mostly, um, who had made the offering for that day. And on many days, the people who had donated the lunch, the lay people who'd made the donation, would come and sit by the food line and um, watch the, the monks and the nuns go through, uh, serving themselves from the food that they had offered. And you could tell what a delight it was for them, first, to have made the offering, and second, to see 750 people be fed from the donations they had made. So it was just a beautiful exchange of, of generosity and then gratitude from our side that we were reminded every day, this is made possible through the donations, through the generosity of many people who so value and support what you're doing that they, they give of their money in this country that doesn't have a lot so that you can do what you're doing. And then obviously as a meditator, one feels that one then really needs to uh, use that support well and not waste one's time, but really practice as well as one can to honor that generosity of spirit uh, of that donation. The Buddha said that three persons are rare in this world. One, he said, was a Buddha. Another, he said, was a person who is grateful and thankful. This is a really, really beautiful quality. Often as we're sitting, we may feel a lot of gratitude for the existence of the path at all. I don't know if you've ever taken time to reflect what your life was like before you knew about a path. But I'll invite you to just consider it for the moment. What was life like before you knew there was a path? Before you knew there was a possibility of ending suffering? Before you knew that suffering had a cause? And because it had a cause, it could have an end. I know what mine was like. I had a lot of pain, and I had no idea what to do about it. I had no idea that there was a way to clarify it and understand it and be free from it. How would we face death without our practice? How would we face aging and illness if it weren't for the practice? Just to know that we are not the body is a huge gift. Most people in the world don't know this. Even if they've heard it, they don't have an experiential sense of it or a real faith in it. We know we are not the body. There is more to us than this. And did you ever think about how you got connected to the path? How did you wind up here? How did you get started? Isn't it mysterious? You read a book. Where did the book come from? How did you get your hands on that book? Or somebody talks to you, a friend just mentions it, and you think, I'll check it out. How did you have a friend like that? You know, there's this great mystery about what brings each of us onto this path. 
And in some ways it's mysterious, but at other times do you kind of get a sense that there's a destiny about it for you? That something in you was going to move you this way no matter what? There's a quotation from the Chippewa tribe of the Native Americans. Sometimes I go around pitying myself while all the time I'm being carried across the vast sky by great winds. We're all being carried by great winds. The great winds of our past actions have brought us here and provided the foundation for our wisdom and loving kindness. One year I was starting a six-week retreat as a yogi here, and the weather was, was really bad. I was starting in November, and it was very cold and gray and rainy. And I was starting to feel the bleakness of the weather sort of seep into my mind state. And I thought, I don't really want to go into that kind of aversion. You know, it's not good to get uh, habituated to aversion early on in a retreat. So I thought, I'll do something to offset it. And what I did was I made uh, a list of things I was grateful for. I just thought of all the things in my life that I appreciated at that time. I didn't spend a lot of time at it, but I filled one sheet of paper. And then every morning on that retreat, I would read over that sheet of paper when I woke up so that I could turn my mind in a direction of appreciation and joy. And that was a very helpful practice for me. In fact, I got that list out the other day and took a look at it, and it's still... uh, it's still most of the things I'm grateful for. I can read it today and feel the same uplift that I, I felt then. We were teach- Sally and I were teaching about gratitude in a, a senior student's class that we do uh, in the Bay Area. And one guy in the class got the idea, I'd like to practice gratitude. So he made the resolve, he connected with a friend, and they made the agreement every night before they went to bed, they would email each other, one thing that they were grateful for in that day. And so every night before they went to bed, they had a gratitude thought from their life and a gratitude thought from their friends. And they said it was a really beautiful practice. So since we've told other people about that, other people have taken it up. And I don't recommend you start it now. But after you get home, it's a nice way to keep it alive in your mind. I want to just finish by talking briefly about the role of joy in insight practice. And I believe that joy is really essential in the path of liberation. There are so many words in Pali that point to this quality. There's mudita, which we've been talking about. There is sukha, which is usually translated as happiness. Steve calls it happy comfort of body and mind. Ananda, which means bliss. This appears in a lot of Buddhist names. The Buddha's cousin was Ananda. My preceptor in Thailand was Ajahn Panyananda, which is the bliss of wisdom. There's the word piti for rapture or delight. There's pamoja, which can be translated uh, gladness. And somanasa, also for gladness of mind. uh, This factor gets pointed to again and again and again uh, in the Buddha's teachings. 
And there's one sutta in particular where it stands out very strongly. Uh, it's a, a list that's sometimes called Transcendent Dependent Arising. Hope you won't get intimidated by the list. But it's a series of 12 links. In that, it's similar to the conventional dependent origination. But these links trace the movement of the path to liberation in very positive terms. So it's showing the wholesome qualities of mind that get developed and lead one to the other to deliver us to the doorway of liberation. And because of this, one commentator, Analayo, uh, a bhikkhu in Sri Lanka, a German monk who's written a fantastic book called Satipatthana, commentary, a book-length commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta, Analayo, in that work, says that the entire scheme of the gradual training, that is the path of, of Dharma, can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. The entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. So in this list called Transcendent Dependent Arising, the Buddha talks about uh, suffering as the starting point leading to faith and faith leading to gladness. Really, it's our faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha that brings the sense of gladness in our practice, this sense of gratitude. And then the gladness, as it becomes developed and recognized, starts to grow. This is from Thomas Merton. There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fountain of action and of joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all created being. We touch this quality of gladness over and over, and that, the Buddha said, gives rise to rapture. Rapture is finding this gladness around the meditation object, finding the brightness of mind that loves to connect with our chosen object. As the mind collects and becomes unified through that delight, then it leads to tranquility in the body and mind. And as the body and mind become tranquil, that leads to the factor of happiness or sukha. I like this word sukha because it sounds a little bit like sugar. And sukha is a pointer to a sweetness of mind. That is the, the meaning of this link. It's such a satisfying sense of being that the whole body and mind start to settle. The mind starts to settle in itself. The body relaxes and calms. And that is the entryway to concentration. Concentration, then, is the basis for insight, and insight is the basis for liberation. So the, the function of gladness and joy is to bring contentment into the heart and mind, to allow for that complete settling where we don't need to look outside ourselves because everything we need, all our deep satisfaction is found just in the here and now. So this sense of sukha is a very deep and more stable flowering. But I think it's so interesting that the practice that the Buddha taught doesn't stop at happiness or sukha. It continues from there through concentration to insight and then liberation. 
This is from the Buddha. Two things I never lost track of. Not to be lax in my efforts and not to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. Not to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. So many times I would have gladly settled for merely wholesome states of mind. But that's not the end of the path. In the sutta called The Simile of the Heartwood, the Buddha said, it is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life. It's heartwood and its end. It is this complete liberation, the total end of suffering that is the final outcome of this path. But this is the same destination as mudita, gratitude, joy, and all the Brahmaviharas. These are all supportive forces that lift the mind up and take it to the doorstep of peace and then liberation. I'll just close with a quotation from the Tibetan. It's an expression uh, from their tradition of the Brahmaviharas uh, in what are called the four immeasurables. Each line will be an expression of one of the four, metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from sorrow. May all beings come to rest in the great equanimity beyond attachment to those near and far. Let's just sit for a minute together, please. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from sorrow. May all beings come to rest in the great equanimity beyond attachment to those near and far. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on November 24, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.